Blog Talk Radio.
Mamba Mubiai, Mulubawaji Tanta. Wawaka Yeme, Mwena Menshi. African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe, and today is Saturday, uh, October the 9th, 2021. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in to another edition of our program. Uh, This program will also feature our Pan-African Newswire report. In this segment, uh, we'll be dealing with uh, stories on the newly inaugurated government uh, in the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia. We'll also be talking about uh, the West African state of Mali, which has accused the former colonial power of France of training terrorists inside this country. Also, France has been criticized uh, for its colonial legacy at a joint conference held uh, with various African countries. And NATO is preparing to deepen its intervention in Africa under the guise of combating Islamic extremism. In the second hour, we hear a briefing uh, from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director General, Dr. John Nkangason, on the current state of the COVID-19 pandemic on the continent. Finally, we review uh, some of the most pressing and burning issues in Africa and uh, the international community in general. 
These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude, and we'll be back uh, later with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Keep it here. 
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, October 9th, uh, 2021. We are broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, we just heard the music of Orchestra Bella Bella and uh, Soki Vangu, music uh, from uh, the mid-1970s from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Our lead story uh, deals uh, with the current situation in the Horn of African nation of Ethiopia. According to the Ethiopia Herald, the commitment of the government of Ethiopia to work with contending political parties by including them in the newly formed cabinet is an example of a democratic practice for other African countries. It is to be recalled uh, that ruling uh, Prosperity Party registered a landslide victory in the Ethiopian general elections held on June 21st of 2021. Accordingly, uh, Ethiopia has officially formed a new government uh, this week uh, based on the election results. Uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed included uh, three competing political parties and their leaders uh, in the new uh, cabinet of the federal government of Ethiopia. Uh, Regional governments have also taken similar moves in their respective cabinets. During the announcement of his cabinet, the premier said the objective of this move is to demonstrate the possibility of working together for national growth, for a national goal, with a view to ensuring the best interests of the country despite political differences. Political science lecturer at Hawassa University, uh, Nigusu Belay, told the Ethiopian news agency uh, yesterday that the new government had been formed 
uh, is a new trend, uh, not only uh, in Ethiopia, but also in most countries throughout Africa. Therefore, uh, such unique political culture in Ethiopia must be admired uh, by other African countries, too. Uh, he added, that's according to Ngusu, uh, who also said that creating conducive environments to help contending major political parties uh, worked uh, with the government brings a new horizon, not only for Ethiopian politics, but also for Africa. The scholar stated that we as an African nation are not familiar in working with our contenders. We largely consider others as threats to one another. But the situation that happened on Wednesday at the Ethiopian parliament was an amazing event that changed the narration about African politics, he said. He further indicated uh, that other countries in Africa should learn from Ethiopia as working together for a national interest is very crucial to ensure democracy and tolerance, which are prerequisites to building sustainable peace and development. The decision uh, made by the government of Ethiopia in this regard demonstrates to the rest of the world that Africans uh, can exercise democracy without any interference, uh, the scholar underscored. He said that we showed the world that we can work together as one even if we have different political views. The world witnessed that uh, Africa can exercise diversity of political views in a peaceful and democratic way, he said indicating that uh, the political stand is different from serving a nation with the knowledge and skill, he said, that all political parties at the government positions should collaborate for successful democratic culture in the country. And uh, in other news uh, taking place uh, on uh, the African continent, we, of course, uh, are following uh, developments in several countries, in Mali, interestingly enough, uh, the Prime Minister uh, has uh, recently uh, declared uh, that France is training terrorists inside the West African state. Now, Mali's Prime Minister, Shoguel Gokala Maiga, has told the Russian media uh, he has evidence that France has been training terrorist groups operating in the West African country. Maiga uh, said French troops had created an enclave in Kadao a town in the desert region of northern Mali, and handed it over to a terrorist group known as Ansar al-Din, allegedly linked to al-Qaeda. He said the Malian military was banned from entering the territory. Mali has no access to Kidal. This is an enclave controlled by France. Uh, Russia Today reported this, uh, citing Maiga's interview uh, at the state-owned RIA Novista news agency on yesterday. Uh, they have armed groups trained by French soldiers, we have evidence. We do not understand this situation and do not want to tolerate it. Maiga added that the groups came from Libya. Comes after Mali's uh, summoned France ambassador to the country to register its indignation uh, at uh, French President Emmanuel Macron. Recent criticism of the country's government, <clears throat> which is dominated uh, by military figures. In June, uh, France decided to scale back its Sahel deployment considerably uh, following a military takeover in Mali in August of 2020, uh, which forced out the elected president, Ibrahim Boubacar Keita. Colonel Asimi Guaita, uh, who led the August coup, installed a civilian-led interim government, but he then deposed the leaders of that government in May of this year in a second coup. Uh, Mali has accused France of abandoning the West African country 
over its decision to reduce its military deployment in the semi-arid Sahel region. Tensions between France and its former colony, Mali, have grown since reports last month that the Sahel state was close to hiring 1,000 paramilitaries from Russian private security firm Wagner uh, to help its fight against groups linked to al-Qaeda as well as ISIS. The French government has stated that despite its planned troop withdrawal, it remains militarily committed to the fight against the armed uprisings in the Sahel. France intervened in Mali in 2013 after armed rebels seized control of the north the previous year. Since then, Paris has deployed thousands of troops across the Sahel region to combat what they called uh, Islamist extremism. Uh, despite its military presence, violence has spread to central Mali and also to neighboring Burkina Faso and Niger. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In further news, also related to the French colonial legacy, President Emmanuel Macron vowed yesterday a full reckoning with the legacy of colonialism as young Africans assail France's arrogance and paternalism at a conference aimed at forging a new partnership with the African continent. We as Africans feel the pain of colonization every single day. That's according to Adele Onyango, a Kenyan media figure. He told Macron during a panel discussion accusing France of living in denial of its destructive past. What we end up with is skepticism of what exactly does France stand for, she said to fierce applause in a meeting of around 3,000 Africans invited together uh, in uh, Montpierre. Onyango uh, was one of the 11 young Africans who politely peppered Macron with criticism during a plenary session and urged him to support democratic renewal in countries where leaders are holding on to power under democratic dictatorships. <clears throat> Stop cooperating and collaborating with these dictator presidents, Sheikh Paul, an influential Senegalese blogger, asking that France offer an apology for colonial era crimes. Macron's uh, response that Paris <clears throat> routinely voiced disapproval of political or military coups on the continent and reduced cooperation with authoritarian regimes. I have never set up a military base unless being asked by democratically legitimate leaders, uh, Macron added. Uh, with regards to France's colonial past, Macron said that asking for an apology is too easy. I don't believe that we can free ourselves of this history. I believe in a policy of rec recognition uh, while promising that an honest reassessment of France's colonial past would be introduced in school curriculums. I want us to accept this truth together. And uh, finally, uh, there appears to be uh, an attempt for even greater uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization penetration of the African continent. According to a report uh, from the United Nations, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, is studying options to bolster support for the multinational G5 Sahel Force in what they describe as the troubled three border regions of Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso in West Africa, where a surge of what they describe as jihadist violence has cost thousands of lives. That's according to the United Nations General Secretary, Antonio Guterres. He said this in a letter uh, that was seen uh, by the international press just this last past Thursday. NATO could extend such support uh, through support and procurement agencies, uh, the United Nations chief said in a recent letter 
to the United Nations Security Council. Uh, Guterres said he is convinced of the need to create a UN support office for the G5 Sahel Force, which comprises around 5,000 soldiers from Mali, Mauritania, Niger, Chad, and Burkina Faso, which would be funded by contributions from the United Nations. He said such a technique would be the most effective approach to provide sustainable and predictable support to the joint force. But the United States, the United Nations' biggest financial backer, has so far rejected the plan, which is favored by France and several African countries. In June, the United States Deputy Ambassador to the United Nations, Jeffrey De Laurentiis, uh, said his country wanted to maintain a clear separation between efforts to fight terrorism and efforts to maintain peace and order uh, to protect the United Nations' neutrality. For years, the United States has said it prioritizes aid to the Sahel countries directly rather than ramping up uh, the United Nations' uh, involvement. The creation of the G5 Sahel Joint Force, despite the persisting challenges, is a strong manifestation of the political will by the five states of the Sahel that merits the support of the international community. That's what the Secretary General Guterres uh, said uh, in his letter. He went on to say that while all interlocutors underscored their strong support to the G5 Sahel Joint Force as an exceptional initiative that warranted international support, there is no convergence of views within the international community on how best to support it, the United Nations uh, Secretary General said. The Security Council, currently led by Kenya, is set to send representatives for a visit to Mali and Niger at the end of the month in an effort to study the security situation. Guterres pointed out that despite the African Union's willingness to take on an integral role in fostering cooperation in the region, the AU stressed that it would require financial support by another donor to manage logistical support of the joint force. The UN currently provides fuel, water, and food to the joint force through the MINUSMA, a peacekeeping mission in Mali, plus bilateral medical support arranged in the last few years. And with that, we want to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. And in concluding uh, this uh, segment of the Pan-African Journal, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussion on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was started in January of 1998. Since that time, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. And uh, if you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go to our website, and uh, that's at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. 
the programs can be shared with other listeners by merely copying and pasting the links into emails and sending those emails out to other potential listeners. The links can also be copied and pasted on blogs and websites as well as uh, being shared through social media networks uh, such as Facebook and Twitter. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe. We'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the voice of Anita Baker, Detroit's own, uh, with the tune-in title, Rules. And uh, right now we want to move into our African Center for Disease Control and Prevention briefing that took place uh, just two days ago. Uh, The briefing is led uh, by the Director General of the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. John Nkangason. Let's listen in. 0-550-2310. The number again is, is plus 251-94-550-2310. You may also choose to join us using the Zoom platform, either live or through the question and answer section. So my name is Wayne Musabayana. I'm Head of Communication at the African Union Commission, and I now hand you over to Dr. John for his usual brief. Dr. John, it's over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Wayne, and it's um, good to be with you again this week, and my apologies for last week that because of the the travel, we couldn't um, respect our usual uh, Thursday rendezvous. So a very warm warm greetings from Addis Ababa. And greetings to everyone who has joined the platform. I would, as always, do three things. Uh, share with you the epidemiological situation, and then uh, discuss what we are doing as Africa CDC to support member states, and then conclude with the vaccination uh, situation. So let's start with the um, epi- epidemiological situation. As of today, October 7, a total of over 8.3 million 8.3 million COVID cases has been reported across uh, all 55 member states. And this accounts for uh, 3.5% of the overall total uh, globally. A total of 213,000 deaths have unfortunately occurred amongst all 55 member states uh, with a case fatality rate of 2.5%. And that number of deaths represents a 4.4 percentage of the overall global deaths we have recorded since the beginning of this pandemic. 80% of our member states, that is 80% of the uh, 55 member states, have now experienced a third wave. And as as I explained subsequently, we are very pleased to see that uh, countries are now coming down uh, uh, nicely with respect to bending the curve uh, from the peak of where we were. And uh, unfortunately, 80% of these countries, that is 35 countries, actually experience a very severe third wave. And the definition, as I've used previously in this setting, is where the peak is uh, more um, is, is, is higher than the previous the peak of the previous wave. Seven countries, and I'll list them, are now experiencing the fourth wave. And these countries include Algeria, Benin, Egypt, Kenya, Mauritius, Somalia, and, and, and Tunisia. Since the last time we briefed, no additional country has joined uh, the series of uh, countries experiencing the food, the food wave. In terms of variants, 45 countries are now reporting the alpha variant 39 countries are reporting the beta variant, and 40 countries are now reporting the delta variant. So if uh, 
you should always remember that these are not like mutually exclusive. So in some countries, you actually see all three variants circulating. So it, it is um, very important to put that in, in the context there. So the Delta variant, if you just focus on the Delta for one second, the 40 countries out of 55 means that a vast majority of our countries now have the variant, the Delta variant, which comes with its own um, unique features in terms of uh, the speed at which it transmits and, uh, and, uh, and, and circulates. So let us now look at the trends. As we always do, we look at the one-week trend and then compare that with the last four weeks. So let's start with the first week, the last week, which is the week between September 27 and October 3rd. During that time frame, 67,000 new cases of COVID-19 were reported across all 55 member states. And this represents a 13% decrease uh, from the previous week. We are very encouraged with that. If you now look at the uh, five countries uh, that are reporting the highest daily incident per million population, I deliberately want to focus on the per million population so that we standardize and normalize for that. We have Seychelles, Lesotho, Sao Tome and Principe, uh, Botswana and, and Gabon. So you see that if you normalize by population, it gives you a very different trend. But if you go with the absolute numbers, then that trend changes. And you have South Africa, Ethiopia, Morocco, Egypt, and Libya coming top. So let us now look at the deaths. Uh, between that same period, that is the period between September 27th and October 3rd, we recorded 2,500 new deaths across the continent compared with uh, 2,600 from the previous week. This represents a 5% decrease in number of new deaths over the last week. Now, in terms of the four weeks, if you look at the stretch a little bit to the last four weeks uh, and, and cover the period between the 6th of September and the 3rd of uh, October, uh, we see the following trends that overall there have been 20% average decrease, 20% average decrease in new cases reported across the continent. And the breakdown by region uh, uh, is as follows. 31% average increase in Central Africa region, 25% decrease in West Africa, 24% decrease in Southern Africa, 22% decrease in Northern Africa, and 4% decrease in East Africa. In terms of new deaths, we've observed, we have recorded as a continent a 13% average decrease in the number of, of new deaths. And the following are the breakdown by the most populous countries in, uh, in Africa. 44% uh, uh, average increase in uh, Egypt, 28% uh, average increase in Ethiopia, 2% average increase in Nigeria, 20% average decrease in South Africa, 18% uh, uh, average decrease in DRC, and 1% average decrease in Kenya. In terms of testing as a continent, we have now cumulatively conducted 73 million tests, 73 million tests, with 1 million of those tests conducted last week alone. However, this represents a slight decrease of 14% compared to the previous week where we tested as a continent 1.2 uh, million tests. The case uh, 
positivity rate continues to be, remain high, an average of about 11%. And the test per case ratio is, uh, has now decreased to 8.8. Uh, you remember our target is to make sure that countries conduct about uh, 10 tests per case, uh, uh, per case. So I think that is not very encouraging. So Africa CDC continues to work with several member states to uh, support them in their vaccination rollout of the vaccination program as part of the uh, Saving Lives and Saving Livelihoods Initiative. And uh, we have people, uh, staff in several countries, including in South Sudan, uh, Sierra Leone, Cameroon, supporting uh, countries there to roll out uh, the vaccines. So that is a nice segue for us to get into the vaccine discussion. So as a continent, uh, today uh, we have uh, a total of 200 million doses of vaccines that have been supplied to 53 member states, 200 million doses of vaccines. Of that number, 156 million COVID uh, vaccine doses have been administered, which correspond to about 76 0.77% of the total supply available used. So that is very encouraging, having at least 76% of our vaccines to fully used um, is a good sign. Now, if you look at the people that have been fully vaccinated, that is the definition of fully vaccination is those who have received their two doses of uh, vaccines, if it requires two doses, or the one single dose of Johnson & Johnson, uh, are in records shows that 4.57% of the population has been fully vaccinated. Some countries are making very good progress uh, in terms of uh, advancing the population that is fully vaccinated. Morocco now is reporting about 53% of its eligible population fully vaccinated. South Africa is making very good, uh, remarkable uh, speed there with about 16% uh, vaccinated. Egypt, 6%, Algeria, 9% fully vaccinated, and Tunisia, about 26% fully vaccinated. So let me just conclude with um, uh, the deliveries that uh, AVAD, that which is the African Vaccine Acquisition Task Team, is um, making. As you will recall, that process is picking up steam when we started with 4.4 million doses of Johnson & Johnson vaccines delivered to 26 member states through August of this month. And the next series of delivery will start very, very soon, hopefully by the mid of this month, which is actually around the 15th of October. You see a series of other countries and the next wave of, or we call it the second round of the distribution will begin. So thank you, Wayne, and I look forward to having a very fruitful conversation with everybody. Thank you very much, John, for that briefing. And it's good to hear that marked decreases have been noted across the continent. Hopefully we'll not be seeing another increase as we head into the festive season coming up in a few months. So we are now going on to our question and answer section. And the first person that we are going to be calling upon is our colleague, Paul Adepoju. Paul, good morning. Please go ahead with your question. 
Uh, yes, uh, thank you very much uh, for this opportunity. So I have a, a couple of questions for Dr. John. Uh, the most recent being uh, his comment on yesterday's decision of the WHO to recommend uh, the malaria vaccine uh, for children. And uh, considering that this is also recommended for children, we also recently heard about an effective Ebola vaccine for children. So I want to know what his thoughts regarding revising African countries' uh, routine immunization programs. Uh, what is the quickest way to get these vaccines uh, to, uh, to needed children? And uh, the issue of cost, how will African countries be able to afford these the cost of procuring these additional vaccines? I also want to know whether there is any update on expanding uh, COVID testing in, in Africa, especially looking at uh, antigen-based uh, uh, tests. And the last question I have is, uh, is there any latest on the decision of the UK government uh, uh, regarding the status and recognition of vaccinations that happened in African countries to ease traveling for Africans coming to the UK. Thank you. So th thank you so much, Paul, and uh, 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 thank you for also for a, a very good um, commentary in the Lancet, uh, I believe, last week. Um, let me just say this, that the news yesterday of uh, the vaccine, a successful malaria vaccine is, is a game changer, and I think must be celebrated as such. And as you know, Paul, um, malaria is one of the uh, biggest killers on the continent. A combination of malaria, uh, tuberculosis, and HIV uh, uh, account for very easily one million deaths a year in Africa. And if you look at just the, the malaria piece, uh, most of the deaths really occur among uh, younger, younger children in, in Africa. So having a vaccine that uh, shows that level of uh, uh, effectiveness or efficacy uh, in preventing severe illness and, and death in, in children is remarkable. I think uh, it must be celebrated as a significant breakthrough in the last 100 years that we have lived with malaria on, on the continent and other places. The malaria is a, a uniquely difficult uh, parasite to fight because of the way it keeps evading the immune system and um, the, the, the way that um, the, the different forms that uh, the, the immune system needs to, to fight with. I mean, even those living in endemic area, you need to be exposed multiple times to actually get a, a certain threshold of what I call uh, protection. So that is extremely uh, good news to celebrate. And I hope that uh, that uh, development means that going forward, uh, the, the knowledge acquired through that vaccine will actually enable uh, researchers to build on that and develop even better uh, effective vaccines. I would like to, uh, before I address your question on immunization, I really pose to congratulate the um, countries that in Africa, i.e. Malawi, Kenya, and Ghana, that took part in uh, um, the vaccine clinical trials. Uh, for the malaria vaccine, and this it really shows uh, African leadership and a, a can-do attitude to resolving and bringing solutions to some of our health problems. That is what we mean by a new public health order in Africa, where we can take the health security and ownership of our own um, uh, uh, health issues and address them. In terms of immunization, I think we need to see the, that dosing, because again, this is a vaccine that requires about four uh, shots, and um, it will be uh, my first reflection without uh, uh, going into uh, details, planning with the people who do vaccination for a living 
will be that uh, to try to incorporate those into the, the childhood immunization program. I think that would be one way of, of looking at that. But again, I will leave that up to the experts in that area. Another thing would be given that um, the, 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 the life-saving uh, 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 options that the vaccine provides to really uh, look at uh, develop immunization, special immunization programs for that, that particular vaccine for most African countries. In terms of cost, I think um, it has to be a combination of, of uh, countries buying, for the, buying the vaccines and also the global uh, uh, multilateralism through Gavi uh, buying the vaccines and bilateral uh, uh, efforts. There. I think a combination of, uh, of these three options will enable countries hopefully to get the vaccines. Um, antigen testing in Africa, uh, it is becoming clear that we have to have uh, a position, uh, a public health position on po uh, testing with antigen tests on the continent and even uh, the recognition of that test for border crossing. Uh, we have so far uh, focused on a PCR test for airport travel. Uh, there's a lot of movement across the border, which is the land border that will require uh, that we, we take a look at antigen testing, and this is uh, being discussed already at Africa CDC. But, and lastly, your question about the UK uh, government uh, statute of, on the recognition of vaccines from Africa, that is um, an ongoing conversation. You saw a statement we put out, and you also uh, have also received a note verbal from uh, the embassy of, of the UK, and say, stating clearly that they will be looking into this uh, further and especially looking at, uh, I think the 7th, today was the day they have stated that they will be actually looking into that decision and possibly thinking of revising. Um, I will be meeting with the UK Minister of, of, of uh, for Africa today evening and that will be a top uh, uh, issue to uh, to be discussed. And we... If, uh, if you read my communique, it was really offering an opportunity for us to sit down and mutually agree on how to move um, the, the process forward journey so that decisions are not made in uh, certain capitals that have consequences in Africa as a whole. So I really hope that this uh, today's discussion by the minister, the UK Minister of Africa will um, provide an opportunity for that dialogue to, to happen. Thank you very much, uh, John, for that response. So we now say good morning to Sarah Jerving. And Sarah, I believe that you are with, um, with DevEx. Please go ahead with your question. Yes, thank you so much. Um, so you said that AVAT delivered 4.4 million doses by the end of August. Um, from what I recall, the goal was to deliver 6.4 million doses by the end of September. Um, has AVAT missed its first target? And if so, why? Thank you. So I cannot uh, give you the exact numbers there, but we will give you, I was just referring to the numbers that have been distributed in Africa. Remember, AVAT also distributed vaccines to the Caribbean countries. I didn't add up those numbers. But if you uh, are interested, I will be very uh, uh, pleased to send you by email the, the exact number of, of the distribution since the last, including those the doses that went to the, um, the Caribbean. Thank you. It's time to say hello to Maggie Fick. Uh, Maggie, I think that you're with Reuters. Please go ahead with your question. Yes, that's correct. Uh, can you hear me all right? We can hear you very well. Please go ahead. 
Great. Thank you. Just to ask in a bit more detail about financing for the first ever malaria vaccine, Dr. Nkengason, is there anything you could say about the priority of glo- the global donors that you mentioned, such as Gavi, uh, to prioritize funding so that this vaccine can get in the arms of children in Africa uh, amid competing priorities for funding with the COVID pandemic. Um, I also wanted to ask if the Africa CDC would like to see other malaria vaccine candidates listed for emergency use in Africa, like the one being developed by the Oxford University researchers. And um, finally, could we ask for a comment on the news from Moderna this morning that they will set up a factory in in Africa? I I guess it's a long-term positive thing. Does it move the needle at all for now? Um, do you have any comment on which countries would want it? Uh, is it a step in the right direction, or should local companies be building such a factory? And that's it. Thank you so much. So th- thank you so much, Maggie. I think um, given the uh, public health, we are in public health here, and malaria, as uh, you've always said me uh, stated, is a major killer in Africa. So at the end of this year, it is likely that malaria alone would have killed many more uh, people, especially in, uh, children in Africa than, than, than COVID. So uh, we really need to not, uh, it shouldn't be a zero-sum game where we, we fund COVID vaccines and neglect uh, malaria vaccines. It should be a, a collective where we look at that in a holistic way and look at financing for her. That is why um, the kind of efforts that uh, President Kagame is leading, which is uh, domestic financing or call it Africa financing, is so important so that the continent does not just rely on uh, donors to finance this kind of uh, vaccines, at, uh, but they should start themselves uh, uh, financing that. So we will be engaging with, uh, with uh, uh, Gabi to understand, in the, and WHO in the coming days, to understand, first of all, the availability of these vaccines, because there's also a need to be sure that there's uh, access to the vaccines and availability. Um, and then once we have that, uh, to have, uh, understand from WHO and Gavi how we can have dialogues, uh, begin to have national dialogues um, uh, with the convening of the AU or the, the Africa CDC to understand how those vaccines can truly be uh, distributed in a timely manner. Uh, with the news with Moderna, to be quite honest, I haven't seen that um, uh, the news already. I think as I move into this conference, uh, press conference, uh, some of your colleagues were texting me to uh, comment on that, but I haven't seen that. I'll be, once I look at that, um, the, I, I believe it's a press release. I haven't seen it. it uh, then I will be a better place to, to comment. But all what we do uh, uh, as Africa CDC is to urge the manufacturers to work with us very closely. Remember, we have the Partnership for African Vaccine Manufacturing, PAM, which was set up by uh, launched by the head of states and we continue to work in that framework so that it is better coordinated and coordinated in a way that we look at the entire ecosystem of vaccine manufacturing in Africa and you are absolutely right that vaccine manufacturing is very very much welcome news um, it is a, a news or a efforts that will address our medium term to long term needs uh, it doesn't necessarily solve our problems today the problems we, we have to solve today is access a, a, a quick access to vaccines, redistribution of vaccines, uh, making sure that um, certain uh, 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 licenses are provided so that 
manufacturing can start regionally, like the, the Aspen uh, group in South Africa, enabling them to produce uh, more so that the Johnson & Johnson doses can be made more available. But again, I, without reading any com- the communique for Moderna, we welcome any news to join us in the Partnership for African Vaccine Manufacturing. Thank you. Just one quick follow-up. Could I have one follow-up? Just one, please, Maggie. Thank you. Okay. I just wanted to confirm that Moderna, it seems to me that Moderna has not communicated directly with Africa CDC about this uh, plan for the factory. Is that correct? I, not that I'm uh, aware of uh, personally as the director of Africa CDC, but it's also not uh, excluded that uh, they have talked to my other staff that they have not vetted that information to me, but I have not personally seen any communications from from, uh, Moderna. All right, thank you. We move on. And uh, this time it's hello to Chinedu Asadu, who is with the Associated Press. And uh, Chinedu says, I remember that the African Union was offered 300 million doses of the Sputnik vaccine by Russia. How many doses have arrived so far and how many people have been vaccinated with those doses? And also, are there any concerns about the Sputnik vaccine and whether health officials can actually rely on receiving shipments of that vaccine on time? So that was the first batch of questions, um, sub-questions under one question. Then secondly, he says, what specific changes does the Africa CDC director hope that the newly recommended malaria vaccine would bring to the continent, considering its malaria burden? So with uh, regards to the Sputnik uh, vaccine, uh, as we indicated last year, that they were willing to put it on the platform. Okay, let me just make sure that I distinguish between what AVAT has secured and then what companies are ready to put on the AVAT platform. Uh, when we refer to the Johnson & Johnson 400 million doses of vaccines, there are vaccines that contracts have been signed. I have learned a lot in this process where you engage a company, then uh, contracts are signed onto, and unless you sign that contract, you have no vaccines. So I think that is uh, so. Uh, you can count the 400 million doses of vaccines from Johnson and Johnson as vaccines in the pocket, which means you can rely on they will be distributed progressively to next year. Now, uh, when we uh, engage with the, the Sputnik, we said, look, you have the, 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 the tell us how many vaccines you can put on the platform on your own, which means that there's no prepayment. Okay, of the vaccines. When we sign these contracts with Johnson and Johnson, there's pre-financing from the Afri Exim Bank. So that, that isn't that is not the case with the Sputnik vaccine. We said, look, your vaccine. Uh, we've seen the data and the efficacy data and the safety data. It looks good. And um, feel free to put that on the platform. They said we'll put 300 million doses there. Countries, as you know, are buying directly from the Sputnik producers. We have no control over that. We don't. Uh, uh, determine what countries do or do not do. Uh, what we do is we give overall guidance to, to countries. You also know that uh, the Sputnik vaccine has not been, has not yet received the WHO emergency uh, uh, utilize, uh, uh, use authorization. So we, are, we continue to remain hopeful that they will give us, uh, they will give that, um, they will get that authorization so that, I mean, it puts everybody on a firm ground that uh, WHO has uh, the authoritative body in this space has given their stamp of approval there. So um, I'll leave it at that. So that is what, I mean, we know so far with that vaccine. With 
uh, regards to the malaria uh, situation is, as you can imagine, is going to dramatically change the way uh, uh, we fight the malaria uh, uh, endemic disease. The, um, if vaccines, they become accessible because I still don't know yet the cost of the vaccines and how quickly they can be scaled up. Okay, so that uh, you can factor that into uh, your vaccine uh, immunization programs. Um, remember, this is the, uh, what WHO announced was the outcome of clinical trials that were done in in three countries: Malawi, Kenya, and and uh, Ghana. We now need to see that massive production have occurred, and once that happens, then we will be convening uh, meetings with member states, and of course, together with WHO, to look at uh, uh, the, the, the vaccination program for that vaccine. So for now, it's too, it's too, too early to to state um, if and how that vaccine will be used. To state how the vaccine will be used, not if. If it's available, we'll use it. But how do you use it? It still uh, uh, lends itself for for discussion. Thank you very much, John. We go over to Nairobi, Kenya, and say good morning to Leon Lidigu, who is with the Daily Nation. Leon, you want to ask your question live. Please go ahead. Thank you so much. Uh, good morning, uh, Dr. Kengasong. Uh, I have three questions. Uh, number one, uh, there's a lot of fear and speculation concerning expectant mothers, and I've spoken to some of them, and they tell me that they are not taking the vaccine because, number one, their husbands are barring them from taking the vaccines for fear it might harm the baby, and number two, they are just generally afraid. So I would want to know which strategies are we using to ensure that the uptake in, in, this, pre, in, in, in this group of pregnant mothers is, 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 is much higher? And uh, number two, uh, where are we with the intellectual property for manufacturing the vaccines for uh, in, as we are thinking about manufacturing, because uh, as, as, as Mr. Strive Masiwa indicated previously, we are having a lot of challenges there. Are we having more conversations or uh, what new decisions have been made? And also with the challenges that uh, Aspen in South Africa has been facing as it uh, struggles to ramp up their fill and finish approach, how many doses are we likely to see from them in the coming few days or weeks? And then uh, finally, um, are there any plans to acquire the new Covaxin vaccine that is almost being approved by um, the WHO as uh, Bharat Biotech has indicated and India? And then uh, India said it will soon resume uh, to vaccine exports. So how many doses are we likely to get from that end? Thank you. So thank you. So many questions. Uh, that. Uh, let me try to take them as as I, as best as I can. The issue of uh, here uh, come again the issue of vaccine um, skepticism from uh, 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 parents or uh, concerned people in the community. We just have to admit that um, vaccine uh, behavior towards vaccine is 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 an issue that has been there before. So I really want to be sure that everybody understands that it doesn't, it didn't start today. Vaccine hesitancy has been there. Uh, those who have been involved in the polio vaccination programs will tell, tell confirm that we always have had these issues there. Then it's not because there are these challenges that, uh, has ever, has, uh, ever stopped us from, uh, continuing, uh, public health work. So we just have to 
and make sure that we use our community, excuse me, community approaches and to increase uh, the awareness of the vaccines and, and create a guarantee. When you have a new product, it, uh, it is expected that the community will be uh, divided as part of the community will be uh, uh, all outgoing and they want to get the vaccine. And but part of the community will also be hesitant. Um, but that hesitancy is not static. I mean, our own public health experience shows that it, it's always a tendency to move uh, in the right direction. Once people are more engaged, you inform the edu- and educate the community uh, uh, with respect to the risks and benefits of, of the vaccine. So let's wait and see how this will happen. Anytime you introduce a, a, a change, they expect that there are other variables that you have to, to address in public health so that uptake can be facilitated. So uh, with respect to the IP, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're referring to IP more generally, and I think it's safe to say that there are conversations are still going on across the board, not just for um, the, the malaria vaccine, but for uh, other vaccines as a whole. Um, how many more vaccines do we expect by the end of the year? As AVAT, as AVAT, we are expecting, again, uh, the vaccine field is very uh, uh, slippery, uh, but I always like to put out the numbers there, and if we don't get to those numbers, I will tell you that we didn't. Uh, AVAT is expecting that by December, we put out there almost about 35 million doses of, of vaccines. Uh, um, that is a single dose of Johnson & Johnson, meaning that it will be the equivalent of about 70 million doses of a double uh, vaccine. So let's remain hopeful that um, this uh, scenario would, uh, would uh, improve. That is the distribution and the production, the fill and finish from the Aspen group in South Africa will improve and we continue to uh, hope so. Uh, new vaccines, yes, the Barat Biotech vaccine, we remain um, optimistic that it will soon hit the market. And, and I, I think there are other vaccines in the pipeline that will probably also be uh, introducing, being introduced in the market as soon as, as possible. We are very encouraged with the news that India have said they will be releasing vaccines. Just how many vaccines, we don't know. Uh, in terms of quantities, we don't know. Uh, but we have been ordered by President Cyril Ramaphosa as the COVID champion to go to India with the, the, the COVID uh, envoy, Strive Masiwa, and some foreign ministers and ministers of health uh, to continue to um, uh, discuss uh, uh, with the leadership of India on uh, the need to release sufficient quantities of vaccines for, for, for Africa, given that we are extremely lagging behind uh, our vaccination targets. I just explained today that we've only vaccinated about 4.5 population of the popula- a percent of the population, and if we have to get to at least 70% the new target, then we have a long way. So that is really justified that why President Namaposa would, as the COVID champion for Africa, would consider it necessary to dispatch a delegation to go to India. Thank you, John. Um, good morning to Sophie Mokwena from the South African Broadcasting Corporation. Sophie, please go ahead with your question. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Nkengasong, you spoke about uh, your meeting with the Minister of Africa, UK Minister of Africa today. There are reports that uh, countries such as South Africa are likely to be removed from the red list today. 
are you also expecting the same uh, announcement? And then the other question, it is around the pharmaceutical companies around the world. The WHO uh, did convene a special meeting with all stakeholders that will include your uh, World Bank, IMF, uh, uh, the pharmaceutical companies around the world and other institutions that are able to finance programs such as a fight against COVID-19. And the meeting was convened specifically to plead with pharmaceutical companies to release stock to Africa, what you are talking about, to have access. And they spoke about uh, countries that are supposed to play their part in allowing the export. How far is that process of ensuring that major countries, particularly your developed countries, uh, where you have these pharmaceutical companies are able to allow the pharmaceutical companies to sell to poorer countries and developing countries. And then the last one is um, the issue of uh, countries using all vaccines. Uh, it was a request from WHO that countries must buy vaccines that have been approved by uh, WHO and it looks like people are still relying heavily on Johnson and Johnson and Pfizer. What are you doing about uh, this issue? And perhaps uh, an update in terms of uh, vaccine uh, uh, uptake. So, uh, Sophie, let me start with the last question. Um, as you know, we have a many of, of vaccines out there. The, the question is access to those vaccines. Uh, even if you have the money, I mean, can you access those, those vaccines given that the manufacturing is a capacity, a global manufacturing is limited? Uh, we are not imposing Johnson & Johnson on any, uh, uh, any one country or any user. Uh, I've explained uh, severally on this platform how and why we ended up with Johnson & Johnson. And, and that is also true for, for Pfizer. Um, we have a menu of vaccines, the Sinopharm, the, 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 the Sinovac, the AstraZeneca vaccines, and, and I believe Moderna. So if a, a country wants to buy those vaccines, they are absolutely free to, to do so. And they have all been qualified by or issued the emergency use authorization by the WHO. So we, um, I don't know if that was the, the, the question. So uh, in, in terms of the, um, the, 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 the access, the meeting that you described with WHO, World Bank Pharmaceutical, I'm sure that that list would probably, I wasn't part of that meeting, so I'm not privileged to the conversations and the deliberations there, but I'm sure the WTO, the World Trade Organization, would have been part of that meeting. And I think it is uh, Dr. Ngozi's, really uh, championship and advocacy that is driving some of these uh, things uh, to happen, which is uh, access to trade barriers and access to pharmaceutical and, and, and diagnostics there. So I'm not privileged to that, uh, that conversation, I can, so I cannot discuss it um, uh, knowledgeably, unfortunately so. Uh, the UK list uh, uh, this evening, as I indicated, I will be meeting with the Minister of Africa and we'll be having 
uh, uh, hopefully uh, an, uh, an open discussion and I'll be learning more from what their plans are and offering also uh, to them what we our thoughts are uh, in terms of sitting the need to sit down and harmonize our um, trusted travel or vaccine uh, uh, certificate recognition and I'll be hearing from him also or her as well uh, with respect to um, what uh, if South Af- if and when South Africa will be removed from the list and other countries in, in, in Africa. So um, stay tuned for next week, whatever transpired. Hopefully uh, next week uh, I will be in a position to share that with you. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, we now go over to Lindsay Kittel. Lindsay, please tell us the news agency that you're with and then proceed with your question. Good afternoon. My name is Lindsay Chappell. I'm with the New York Times. Um, are you able to hear me? Yes, we Great. can hear you. Thank you. My question is, today Moderna announced that it would be building a factory in Africa, but it hasn't said exactly which country or given the timeline. I was wondering what the African CDC's, what, what the African CDC's uh, response to this would be, and then also which country would you suggest Moderna build in? Thank you. No, th- thank you. I, I think, um, as, as I said earlier, uh, to, in response to, uh, your, your, I think it was uh, Maggie's question, uh, uh, <clears throat> asked that question initially, is that we don't know. I've not seen that press release, so it's very uh, inappropriate to be commenting with specific on things that I've not uh, seen. Uh, now, uh, I will answer that again, as I said earlier. Uh, we have a partnership for African vaccine manufacturing which has a political backing and our wish and hope is that uh, Moderna works with that that group it's, uh, it's a group that looks at vaccine manufacturing in Africa from an ecosystem perspective from the whole of Africa approach we do not uh, tell uh, uh, manufacturers where to go uh, produce their, their vaccines we bring countries together and and through that forum they can bring countries together and there are about 10 countries in Africa that have expressed an interest in vaccine manufacturing. We can actually bring them all together and put Moderna at the center of that and they discuss and ask all the questions. That will really speak to the need to be transparent and also to be cooperative and, and also coordinate our efforts. So and we, if we learn more, of course, we will let you know. So, Judith, that is a very good question. We are in a situation where we countries have to balance between uh, saving lives and saving livelihoods. And uh, we as Africa CDC are saying that um, the, the, the way we manage the pandemic early on, where with a series of severe lockdowns and and then you release them, then you lock them down severely again, it's, it's over. We have to use what we call public health measures and, uh, and social measures to, to control this together, which include testing, that is expanding the use of rapid antigen tests, rolling out vaccinations, enhanced surveillance, looking for hotspots and squashing them before they become uh, they produce a third wave or the fourth wave or fifth wave. And, and, and of course, uh, uh, maintaining uh, social distancing as much as possible. 
So I think um, that each time we, we impose a severe lockdown, as our friends from the economic side would tell us, they said at least a $30 billion loss in, in economy. And we, uh, it's going to be difficult to be moving from one severe lockdown to another. But we can avoid those uh, lockdowns, severe lockdowns, if we do those things that are just listed here. So that is that would be our, uh, my response respond to that. But of course, um, these are general guide, guidelines. Each country will have to ad- to adapt those guidelines in in the in the context of the, the pandemic. And generalized lockdowns are also not encouraged. I mean, you should really be using data from your testing to inform what are called localized uh, 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 lockdowns, if you have to go down that way. Uh, say, for example, if we are doing routine massive testing, antigen testing in some parts of Nairobi, and subsequently a month later you're doing the same survey and you see that the positivity rate is increasing there, you can actually enhance your public health measures around that community to bring it down to an acceptable level. All right, so thank you, John. We go over to Gemma, who is with Samidia Hack, and she has come to our WhatsApp platform. And Gemma says, for the Africa CDC's plan to increase the vaccination production to 60% by 2040, how many facilities will need to be developed or established for this to happen? And then she also asks, um, if it is possible that existing pharmaceutical companies are expected to expand to meet this demand? Yeah, I think the, um, the 60% target by the year 2040 is uh, it's an ambitious target, but a very necessary target. And if we consider that as a continent, we import 99% of our vaccines, we have to really uh, uh, be very deliberate and, and in saying that uh, that scenario doesn't guarantee our health security and we would uh, put uh, extra efforts in in doing uh, uh, in shifting that uh, paradigm now as we speak 10 countries have uh, now shown up uh, what i call raise their hands and say we are interested in vaccine manufacturing that is very encouraging i mean if you remember when we had the summit the vaccine summit on april 2nd and 3rd uh, we just we had about five countries that had traditionally been producing some types of vaccines. That was like, I think, Egypt, South Africa, Tunisia, Morocco, and, and Senegal. Now, a whole host of countries have, have expressed a, a strong interest. And that is why uh, we are saying that the only mechanism to guide that process is through the coordination of the Africa CDC uh, through the PAM, the Partnership for African Vaccine Manufacturing there. So if you keep doing that, we can catalyze the space, look for appropriate partnerships, and, and get uh, advance the discussion on the process forward. In the coming week, we will be hosting a meeting with um, uh, entrepreneurs across the continent to um, expose to them the ecosystem of vaccine manufacturing and also discuss with them exactly what we are doing to engage partners so that the market sh- can be shaped. There is absolutely no point uh, thinking of uh, uh, vaccine manufacturing in Africa if the market will not be there. So we have to begin to, we have to tackle the problems on both ends from the demand side and the supply side. And, and that's exactly what we are doing through the pump uh, process. All right, uh, thank you. I see Sarah, your hand is still up. Do you have a second question? Um, Sarah, do you have I, I do, yes. Yeah. 
Yes, thank you so much. Um, so as a follow-up to my previous question, which was on the September targets for AVAT, um, you just uh, said earlier that the end of year target for AVAT was 35 million. Um, but in August, the CDC put out a press release saying the end of year target was 50 million. Um, so has the AU decreased its end of year target for AVAT from 50 million to 35 million? Thank you. No, no, absolutely. I think that we, again, what we are, <clears throat> we, we've set as a target, <clears throat> and this is not just Africa CDC, but with WHO as well, we're saying we should strive to get to at least 35% or so of our population immunized by the end of the year. Shall we meet that target? I don't know. And that will require that uh, we counting all the vaccines, those from bilateral, those from the COVAX mechanisms and vaccines from ABAT. And if you remember, we said, um, uh, and that was not necessarily a target. I think it was a WHO target that said by September, they wanted most countries to get to 10% immunization. Did any countries get to 10% immunization? No. I think some countries did, some, some did not. So we continue to see the projections, that uh, the evolution of the production from South Africa. Remember, we are all counting on uh, for aspirin. The, the aspirin manufacturing in South Africa to be as effective as, as it can be and, and or even do more, that is, uh, uh, increase its production uh, rate there. So the numbers that we are uh, projecting here are numbers that uh, we, we are doing all kinds of uh, calculations and, and, spec and, and projections to see exactly what uh, it is. If, if there are more, we will tell you that we, we, we got more vaccines there. Remember, we have a contract that is, um, uh, 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 has guaranteed that we should access up to about 400 million, <clears throat> 400 million doses of, of vaccines. So I think uh, so that we, we keep adjusting those numbers based on what we see in terms of the projections from the, um, the, that factory. If next week uh, with uh, Strive Masiwa and others, we get more information that the numbers will increase. We'll let you know that the numbers will increase. And if the factory is running into challenges, we'll let you know that, uh, I mean, there will be um, decreases in the projection. The, the vaccine situation is very fluid, as you know, and at, uh, you, you can't really have a full handle uh, over on that, even if you have signed your, your contracts with them. All right, well, thank you. <coughs> another question that's coming in from Esther and Esther is a freelance journalist. She says, it is said that Burundi, which is one of the two countries in Africa not to be on the vaccination map, recently received a donation of COVID-19 vaccines, but also that the population there is not interested in their uptake at all. So does Dr. John have any plans on what is happening there? Uh, first of all, as we announced a few weeks ago, Burundi has officially engaged with, with COVAX and AVAT to get vaccines, I think that is very good news. And um, I'm not aware that they have received uh, a shipment of vaccines. I think that is uh, very, very, very encouraging. And if they have, um, we uh, we stand by to work with them. And <coughs> excuse me, as a, <coughs> as a matter of fact, there's um, um, we have actually received a request from the country, from the Minister of Health, to support them in their vaccination efforts. So we will do everything uh, possible to uh, not leave any country behind. And um, as we know more with the vaccines, in terms of what kind of vaccines 
and what quantities in, in Burundi, we will, of course, uh, let you know. All right. <clears throat> Thank you. Our time is almost up. But let me just give uh, Maggie the chance to ask one quick uh, follow-up question. Maggie, please go ahead. Thank you so much. Um, I, sorry, going to my question. Um, I wanted to ask about whether the Africa CDC is pushing the access to COVID-19 tools accelerator um, of COVAX to sign advanced purchase deals with Merck for this new pill Monupiravir that could prevent hospitalization when you catch COVID. Does the Africa CDC fear there is another scramble underway for that drug as happened with the vaccines and that Africa could be left behind again? And do they want to act to act quick, quickly to secure some of that of those doses? Uh, as a matter of fact, we have, um, I'm, I'm part of the, 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 the Act Accelerator um, College Advisory Group or a, a, a committee, and we will be as vocal as you can imagine in those discussions so that we are not left behind. Are we concerned that as a continent, uh, we will be left behind? This, or if you look at the history of this um, the, the commodities, when they have emerged, uh, it's always been a challenge for the continent to access them at the same time with, with others. So, but we always remain hopeful that um, solidarity and cooperation will prevail. So this is a drug that looks like a potential game changer if you put it in the in the whole uh, the toolkit for fighting COVID-19. That is uh, the testing, the vaccines, and, and treatment. So this is again a scenario, a situation where um, uh, solidarity should uh, uh, should actually prevail, and we should be having those drugs when they're available at almost the same time as other uh, countries. During the third wave, uh, uh, Maggie, which spanned between uh, June to August, about 80,000 people died in Africa just because of the severity of the third wave. We don't know uh, uh, how the fourth wave would look like. So having those drugs available and in the context of very limited vaccine and vaccinations across the continent, that could be potentially be an additional uh, very potent tool to fight the pandemic. All right. Uh, thank you very much, uh, John. We've come to the end of our program, but before we close, um, if you could just give us your summary of the main highlights from today's meeting. Uh, the main highlights, uh, Winnie, is that the vaccination rate in uh, Africa is still very low, uh, at about 4.5% uh, of the population has been fully vaccinated. Uh, we continue to uh, make an appeal to the global community that vaccinating, uh, enabling the continent to get uh, vaccinated at scale and at speed is a way to ensure that the collective security of everybody. So there's no other message than that, because that is where we are today. I mean, discussions about vaccine manufacturing that will come in uh, later uh, doesn't solve the problem today. What solves a problem today is how do we, where and how do we get those vaccines in the arms of people as quickly as possible. I, I will repeat what I've said before, uh, just a few minutes ago, that during the third wave, about 80,000 people died in about two and a half months. If you put that in the context of the cumulative number of people that have died in Africa, uh, that is a total of about 211,000. It means about 40% of the deaths occurred just the last uh, couple of months. 
And that speaks to, again, the, the, the why is that? Because of the limited access to vaccines on the continent. So we call on every uh, 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 partner, uh, friends of Africa, that it is time to really uh, translate pledges and translate those promises into action so that we can save many more lives in Africa. Thank you very much. Uh, that was Dr. John Strong, who is the director of the Africa Central for Disease Control and Prevention, who gave us his briefing on the situation of COVID-19 in Africa, as well as uh, took a number of questions, quite a lot of questions from colleagues in the media. And I want to thank you, colleagues in the media, and. Welcome back. Uh, that was uh, the weekly briefing uh, from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Now, the Director General's Office uh, in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, uh, Dr. John Nkangason, uh discussing uh, the COVID-19 pandemic in Africa, the rollout of the vaccination programs, also discussions about the uh, recently announced uh, vaccine uh, for malaria, which impacts uh, millions uh, every year on the continent. We'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back with our concluding segment uh, for our program. Oh, 
Welcome back, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, that was the voice of the legendary uh, Phyllis Hyman and Take Me, Meet Me on the Moon. 
And uh, right now we want to move into our Africa Live uh, CGTN segment that we want to remind our listeners that uh, we are able uh, and you are able to access uh, this program along with over a thousand other editions of the Pan-African Journal by merely logging on to the Pan-African Radio Network. Uh, That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash uh, Pan-African Journal. And uh, right now, let's listen in to uh, CGTN Africa Live uh, for today. China commemorates the 110th anniversary of the revolution of 1911. 61 people confirmed dead and over 100 missing after a boat sank in the Democratic Republic of Congo. U.S. officials meet with Taliban senior leaders in Doha. Hello and welcome to Africa Live. As always, great to have you with us. I'm Richard and Todd live in Nairobi. And for those of you joining us from across the continent and around the globe, we thank you for joining us. Let's take a look at other stories making headlines this hour. In business, Sri Lankan Airlines launches flights to Nairobi as it expands operations into Africa. And in sports, Egyptian talisman Mohamed Salah among 30 nominees for the coveted Ballon d'Or Award. Once again, welcome to Africa Live. Great to have you along with me for this hour. We begin in China's capital, Beijing, which is commemorating the 110th anniversary of the Revolution of 1911, also known as the Xinhai Revolution. The Revolution of 1911 overthrew China's last imperial dynasty and ushered in the advent of modern China. President Xi Jinping led this morning's commemoration. Su Yuting has more. officials and representatives from all across China gathered at the Great Hall of the People to remember the important chapter in China's history. This year marks the 110th anniversary of the Xinhai Revolution that put an end to more than 2,000 years of imperial rule in China. The revolution is of great historical significance as it led to the establishment of the Republic of China and the following social changes in the country. President Xi Jinping delivered a speech at the event stressing national integrity. The CPC was chosen to lead by history and by the people. Its leadership is very foundation and lifeblood of the party and the country, and it is the crux upon which the interest and the well-being of all Chinese people depend. President Xi said Sun Yat-sen, the forerunner of China's democratic revolution, has been a champion of national unity and integrity. He also emphasized that CPC members are the strongest supporters, most loyal collaborators, and most faithful successors of Sun's undertakings. National reunification by peaceful means best serves the interests of the Chinese nation as a whole, including our compatriots in Taiwan. We will adhere to the basic policies of peaceful reunification and one country, two systems, uphold the one China principle and the 1992 consensus, and work for the peaceful development of cross-strait relations. Compatriots on both sides of the Taiwan Strait should stand on the right side of history 
and join hands to achieve China's complete reunification and the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. This year not only marks the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party of China, but also the 110th anniversary of the revolution of 1911. President Xi Jinping is calling on the Chinese people to learn from revolutionaries' noble patriotism and devotion to the motherland, and carry on the pursuit of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Su Yuting, CGTN, Beijing. And heading back to the to the continent, let's go to the Democratic Republic of Congo, where at least 100 people are dead or missing after a boat sank in the Congo River. The incident happened in the northwestern province of Mongala. Authorities have confirmed that 61 people died during the accident. 39 other people have been rescued as local officials continue in search and rescue efforts. Now, for more on this, we are joined by Chris Ochamringa standing by for us in Kinshasa. Chris,、uh, tragic events there on the Congo River. What more details do you have about this accident? Well, authorities in the DRC have confirmed that 61 people died in that accident in the northwestern province of Mongala.、Uh, on Friday, officials in that area had said they had retrieved 51 bodies, but 10 more bodies were found, and that brings the total to 61 people. There are about 70 people who are still missing, and 39 people who, who have been found. And、uh, search and rescue efforts are still going on. By some, but some local officials in that area say that the hopes of finding more survivors are fading.、Uh, Uh, every every second that passes, because、uh, the, the the water is has been flowing. It happened last night on Friday night. The people were traveling at night, which is not allowed according to the navigation standards in the DRC. And many of the pa- passengers on that boat didn't have life jackets. Now, boat accidents are very common in the DRC. In February this year, there were 76 people who died in、uh, on the Congo River in the western province of Mindombe. Now, that action against boat owners and operators, because、uh, every year. The accidents that happened. The president has warned people, you know, to,、uh, against traveling in these boats without life jackets. But the problem in the DRC is the enforcement. You know, boat,、uh, boat traveling by boat is the main mode. Of transport in this country because it has a very poor road network and it's cheaper than other、uh, modes of transport. And so people all, you know, use、uh, these boats to travel to different parts of the country. But the problem is the boats are in very poor condition, very old. And so the government, you know, has to start taking action to ensure that lives are safe. Again, Chris, a sad, sad news coming out of the Congo. Thank you for staying on top of that story for us, Chris Oputimringa. Much appreciated. Uh, let's turn our attention to Libya. At least six migrants have been shot dead at a detention center as many escaped from the facility.、Uh, that's according to the International Organization for Migration. An IOM official said overcrowding caused chaos at the Gotshai Center in Tripoli, and the UN Refugee Agency reports that security forces detained more than 5,000 people over the past week in a crackdown against migrants, refugees, and asylum seekers. Authorities, however, describe the exercise as a campaign against undocumented migration and drug trafficking. Human rights group Amnesty International is calling on Libyan officials to charge those found to have committed crimes and release the innocent. Moving on, French President Emmanuel Macron has promised a new era for ties with Africa, particularly through the youth. He was speaking at the Africa-France summit in the French city of Montpellier. The meeting was organized in the hopes of creating a new approach 
to what critics dub as colonial attitudes carried from the past. The various issues were debated, including migration, new political movements, and strained relations between France and some African countries. Uh, this is following Macron's decision to cut down visas to Algerians, Moroccans, and Tunisians due to a dispute surrounding irregular migration. CGTN's Jane Kio has more on the summit. A continent of promise and hope. This is how French President Emmanuel Macron described Africa during the Africa-France summit. A country like France, which has this very special history, has above all a responsibility, a task. It is to respond to the aspirations and the demands of the African youth and to have projects that match these aspirations and what they ask us to do, not what comes from here. The meeting focusing on Africa youth brought together entrepreneurs, artists, athletes and activists. Macron stressed that the continent's majority youth population is yearning for change. Our generation, all of us, as we are, the question that is being asked of us is how do we embrace and build our future? And the debt that we owe the African continent is a debt with regard to a continent which is continuing to grow in an incredible manner, which fascinates the entire world, which sometimes frightens others, of which over 70% is comprised of young women and men, less than 30 years old, adolescents and children. It is a continent of promise, of hope. I would like for this summit to be the start of something, the complete rupture of this posture that we can often qualify as paternalist, and also the rupture of this view of Africa, which is not a continent of suffering or unemployment or disease. It is a continent of youth, of resources, of optimism, of innovation. During the summit, Macron also promised to give back 26 pieces of art to Benin looted from the Abome Palace in 1892 during the colonial wars. This another step in solidifying relations with the African continent in what could be a new era for France and Africa ties. Jane Kale, CGTN. Well, for some more perspective on relations between Africa and France, let's cross over to Paul Melly, who is a consulting fellow for the Africa program at Chatham House. Paul, welcome to Africa Live. Thanks for taking time to speak to us. Now, from what we saw at the meeting, France is looking to reset ties with the African continent. How would that new relationship look like? Paul. Well, I think the challenge that Macron has been trying to tackle and He's made a start on it, if you like, with this summit, is to try and broaden the relationship out beyond one that is just a relationship between government leaders and business elites. One of the old criticisms that always used to be made of that connection in the past was that it was uh, too self-congratulatory, if you like. There were too many vested interest connections between political leaders in France and in Africa. And so... This, uh, this that new approach is really an attempt to broaden it out and really recognize the fact that Africa is a very young continent. Um, it has a particularly high proportion of youth in the population. Uh, expectations are changing. Of course, the internet, um, social media and satellite TV and so on means that young Africans <coughs> are vastly more informed uh, than uh, earlier generations. 
and much and they're very much engaged with what's going on in the outside world and so he's trying to develop a, a French strategy that actually connects to this new Africa but it's always difficult because there are still contentious and complicated political problems sensitive issues between governments and which can find a popular echo just as you were mentioning earlier in the bulletin about the the dispute over visas and there's currently a row with Mali over um, remarks by both uh, the Malian Prime Minister and Macron himself about uh, the French military engagement there and so those those sorts of difficult political issues will always be there but I think what Macron's trying to do basically is both change open up African perceptions of France and show that France is willing to engage across a broader and much more flexible uh, range of issues. All right, Paul. Change. Paul. That's really what it is. Well, Paul, on top of what you said, Africa is a young country, continent, as you've mentioned. President Macron described Africa as a continent of promise and hope. How can Africa and France move forward given the history of colonialism and the often criticized military interventions? How do you see it? Well, the military interventions, although they're often criticized now in the way they sometimes when things go wrong, there is a bit of a difference between the, the current interventions and those in the past. In the past, uh, French troops would sometimes interfere directly in African politics, whereas the troops that are now in the Sahel were invited to come there. They came at the request of the Malian government. So although things don't always go perfectly, that dynamic is a bit different. And the other thing is that um, what, what Macron is trying to do is say that if African governments and also African populations want to change aspects of the relationship, it's up to them. So he made a very famous speech in 2017. All right, Paul, Paul Melly, thank you for your insight and analysis. We're going to have to leave it there. We do get a sense of what you're trying to say. Uh, let's move on, though, to Afghanistan, where the country's authorities say at least 46 people died after a suicide bomber attacked a mosque in the city of Kunduz. The blast on Friday wounded more than 140. The group ISIS-K has claimed responsibility. Zamar Eli Abbasan reports from Kabul. The Friday attack was very brutal, uh, and it took a place uh, which was a suicide attack inside a mosque related to the Shiite Muslims or Hazaras in Khanabad, Bandar area of Kunduz uh, province and northeast of the country. The suicider enters in a mosque where hundreds of uh, people were praying Friday uh, prayers and that's uh, the time when he blows himself. According to the Taliban, I've been talking with Zabullah Mujahid and other authorities in Kunduz also, uh, they've been telling that they've started their uh, search uh, investigation and they will soon uh, get to the cells of ISKP in Kunduz and elsewhere in the country while uh, the people in Af Afghanistan have already criticizing the Taliban, it was the third uh, attack and very bloody attack after the uh, 26th of August attack inside Kabul airport while there was an evacuation process which also killed and injured hundreds of people. So the criticism on Taliban is increasing the fears among the people or also increasing 
And that's something will be challenging for the Taliban in the future. I was also talking with experts. They believe that it's not now related only to Afghanistan. And extraordinary steps and initiatives should be taken by the regional countries, particularly the major ones like China, Russia, and Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Iran, particularly to tackle the threats of Daesh in the region. Washington says it will hold two-day talks with the Taliban in the Qatari capital, Doha. The State Department said Friday officials will press the group to respect the rights of all Afghans. The Taliban has yet to confirm the meeting on October the 9th and the 10th, uh, whether it will take place. But spokesman Zabihullah Mujahid tweeted pictures of a delegation aboard a flight for Doha. It will be the first in-person talk since the withdrawal of American troops over a month ago. And for more on this story, let's cross to Lazima Gomez, who is live for us in Doha. Lazima, thank you for joining us here on Africa Live. Uh, what do we know about this meeting so far, Lazima? Uh, well, as you know, Qatar has been playing a key role in mediating talks between Taliban and the U.S. as well as other countries since the start of the takeover of Afghanistan by Taliban. According to Al Jazeera, a Taliban delegation led by acting Afghan Foreign Minister Amir Khan Mutaki has arrived in Doha to hold talks with Qatari officials and representatives of a number of other countries, including the U.S. U.S. officials, including intelligence and Department of State, are soon to hold their first face-to-face -face meeting with Taliban officials. Uh, the meeting comes as the U.S. government continues its efforts to bring American citizens as well as vulnerable Afghans out of Afghanistan. Furthermore, according to Al Jazeera, the U.S. State Department stressed that the meeting did not indicate that the U.S. state was recognizing the Taliban rule in Afghanistan. Uh, while the Taliban has insisted the U.S. has should honor the 2020 agreement it signed in Doha where the U.S. was given a time frame to leave Afghanistan as well as unfreeze Afghan central bank assets worth billions of dollars. The key uh, priorities of the meeting are said to be firstly of course the safe passage of U.S. citizens and Afghan citizens as well as other foreign nationals. Uh, the talks will also ensure to press the Taliban not to allow Afghanistan to be a hotbed for any terrorist activities. They will further ask the Taliban to respect rights of women and girls. Uh, as well as the Afghanistan, uh, right now, uh, they also want them to allow humanitarian agencies access into certain areas into Afghanistan, as currently Afghanistan stands to chance to be a huge part of a big humanitarian de devastation. Talks will continue over today and tomorrow, so we will see what we have further. All right, Lazima Gomez, let's leave it there for now. Appreciate that update and report. You are watching Africa Live. Time now for a short break, but here's what's ahead. Military and civilian leaders in Sudan's transitional government trade blame over the delayed peace process. And the Democratic Republic of Congo confirms a new case of Ebola five months after the most recent outbreak. Africa is a continent of diversity with varied climates and enchanting geography and a people
able to think, but with a shared enduring spirit. We are at the heart of the continent. To bring you the untold stories. Let's have a look. We celebrate Africa as it shapes its own destiny. Africa Live. Find your voice. Welcome back to Africa Live. Thanks for staying with us. Let's turn our attention to Sudan, where military and civilian leaders have been at loggerheads. The two sides are blaming the other for delayed peace processes and slow progress in the realization of democracy. Now, this comes almost a fortnight after Khartoum announced a failed coup attempt. Here is CGTN's Wanja Mungai with the story. It's almost three weeks since a failed coup attempt was reported in Sudan. Since the events of September 21st, civilian protests, accusations between civilian and military leaders have ensued. The civilian leaders are accusing the military of a power grab. I'm sure that until now, the military component is not keen on the completion of a civilian democratic transition. They aim at weakening the civilian authority through economic sabotage and encouraging ethnic protests and not handling them seriously to create a reality that allows them get over the democratic and civilian transition to take control of power in Sudan. The military, on the other hand, blames the recent turmoil on civilian politicking and mismanagement. We do have a promise in front of God to take this country to a democratic rule. This is a promise that we won't give up on. But this needs a program. It needs procedures. It requires us to move, not to stand still, just talking about elections. The transitional period should be limited, and we said that from the beginning. The military and civilian leaders sharing power are tasked with returning the country to democratic rule. Elections are expected by late 2023, and there are fears a collapse of that partnership could cripple the economy. The other likely result of a military takeover of the transition is to see the uh, the international partners turn off the taps of the all-important international financial assistance to Sudan. Sudan's economy is probably the, the most fragile component of its transition, and the transition's very fate probably rests on the welfare and well-being of the economy. In the meantime, Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok has launched mediation talks to pacify differences between the two sides, but the outcome remains unclear. Wanjamungai, CGTN. Now on to the Democratic Republic of Congo now. The Ministry of Health there has reported an Ebola case in the east of the country. Health Minister Jean-Jacques Mumgani said a three-year-old boy tested positive for the virus and died in Beni City on Wednesday. The announcement comes five months after the most recent outbreak there was declared over. Beni is also an epicenter of an epidemic between 2018 and 2020, killing more than 2,000 people. Mbugani has assured that about 100 people who were in close contact with the victim are being monitored. 
The World Health Organization says it wants 40% of the global population to be vaccinated by the end of the year. To give us more insights on the existing inequalities surrounding the distribution of COVID-19 vaccines, we earlier spoke to Dr. Mary Stevens, the technical officer of the WHO Regional Office for Africa. Let's take a listen. Well, let's quickly look at uh, the statistics of what we have as at uh, this morning with regards to vaccination on the continent. So, so far we have received 217 million uh, doses of vaccines on the continent, and uh, we have administered 153 million, which is about 70% uh, of the doses we have received so far. Uh, a total of 64.7 million people have been fully vaccinated on the continent. Yes, so the, the, the inequity still remains. Uh, we have seen some improvement in terms of uh, uh, the, the vaccine access on the continent. For example, uh, in September, we received about 23 million doses of vaccine, which was a tenfold increase from the doses uh, we received around June this year. But uh, we are not where we want to be. Um, but definitely not where we were before. Uh, if you remember earlier, uh, at the, in, in October, um, we declared that about 15% of uh, the countries in Africa met the 10% target, but definitely, yes, the inequity still remains. Most of uh, the challenges we have, especially uh, in Africa, is uh, with regard to access to this vaccine. Yes, there are some countries that are uh, dealing with uh, issues of, uh, of hesitancy and all that, but the major, major problem we have is access to the vaccine. And this is as a result of uh, the, the, the really the problem with access to vaccines globally, manufacturing capacity. And uh, where you have uh, some of uh, those income, high-income countries buying up uh, these vaccines. So what we are calling on, uh, on, on uh, the global community basically to do is to make sure that uh, countries that have excess doses, they are sharing those doses. Those that have vaccinated a large proportion of their countries should give up their, their, their space on the queue for, for COVAX to access more vaccines so that they can de um, deploy these vaccines to low and middle income countries. And of course, uh, continue to enhance capacity for, for production of vaccines, especially in Africa as well. So we can ramp up uh, the, the, the quantity of vaccines we have globally and therefore increase uh, the vaccination coverage. The South African government has once again called on the African Union Commission to revoke the decision to grant Israel an observer status in the continental body. International Relations Minister Naledi Pandor was speaking during a bilateral meeting aimed at further strengthening the relationship between South Africa and Palestine. CGTN's Yulisa and Jamela has more. At this bilateral meeting, the leaders representing the two nations reviewed the state of bilateral relations. They expressed their satisfaction with the cordial relations that exist between the two countries and signed a number of agreements. We will review the existing memoranda of understanding and ensure that they are implemented. And we're going to work hard to ensure that we have stronger and many more people-to-people -people exchanges. The meeting was mostly engaged with the issue of the Israel observer status granted by the AU. There can be no justification for granting such status by the African Union, particularly given that the African Union publicly and strenuously objected to the deaths of Palestinians 
and the destruction of civilian infrastructure in your country. The issue of the Israel observer status is due to be up for debate at the African Union. We expect the African Union to stay by its own principles and, and to take action and decisions based on such principles. We hope that words and the voice of wisdom and the voice of justice will prevail during the discussions. The relations that exist between the two countries will further be strengthened by a planned state visit to South Africa by Palestinian President Abbas Mahmoud. Yulisan Jamila for City to end in Pretoria, South Africa. Kenya says it will not recognize next week's expected ruling by the International Court of Justice on a maritime border dispute with Somalia. Although Kenya withdrew from the case earlier this year, the ICJ will deliver its ruling next week. CGTN's Daniel Arab Moy reports. Kenya and Somalia have engaged in a protracted legal battle at the International Court of Justice over a maritime border. And over 100,000 square kilometers of Indian Ocean waters have since 2014 been at the center of the dispute. In March, Kenya withdrew from the case, accusing the court of bias. The delivery of the judgment will be the culmination of a flawed judicial process that Kenya has had reservations with and withdrawn from on account not just of its obvious and inherent bias, but also of its unsuitability to resolve the dispute at hand. The disputed area of the coast is thought to be rich in oil and gas. Kenya maintains that the dispute with Somalia be resolved through amicable negotiations. It is important for every Kenyan to understand that threats to territorial integrity are now no longer necessarily overt or direct. The filing of a case against Kenya at the court and the court's assumption of jurisdiction where it, where it had none are demonstrative of new tactics of using pseudo-judicial processes to undermine territorial integrity. The East African country has also withdrawn its recognition of the court's compulsory jurisdiction. As a sovereign nation, Kenya shall no longer be subject to an international court or, tribu or tribunal without its expressed consent. The government has called on Kenyans to remain calm as the country awaits the final judgment. Daniel Arabmoy, CGTN, Nairobi, Kenya. Time now for another short break. We've got your business segment coming up next. Here's a peek at the headlines. Sri Lankan Airlines launches flights to Nairobi as it expands operations into Africa.
You don't find the stories of North Africa by sitting on the sidelines. You've got to get out, go there, and you'll find them. In the bazaars is Casablanca. Among the crowds in Cairo, who come to visit Cairo, the ancient capital of Egypt. Along the waters of the Nile, along the sands of the Sahara, no one else will take you where we can in North Africa. No one else will show you what it's all about. DGTN, see the difference. Africa Live. Find your voice. Welcome back to our business segment in Africa Live. Let's start off in Sri Lanka where the country's national carrier, the Sri Lankan Airlines, has launched flights to Nairobi on Friday as it expands operations into Africa. This is expected to be a significant cargo route in capitalizing on key trade routes in connectivity to the present network. Flights to and from Nairobi are expected to be scheduled every Thursday. The direct flight between Colombo and Nairobi is fast improving the fortunes of Kenyan flower firms and helping boost the battered tourism sector. Moving forward, we believe in the future that we will work together bilaterally and also we invite you to use Sri Lanka as your gateway to Asia and of course the southern hemisphere. As it is now, we have invested heavily on our maritime infrastructure and aviation. It was President Gotabe Rajapaksa's vision to continue to create Sri Lanka as a maritime hub. There is no tourism destination without connectivity. And we are glad, uh, Mr. Ambassador, for facilitating this connectivity uh, between Nairobi and Colombo, and not only because of tourism, but also we have a very, uh, very good partnership also in the agricultural sector, the, the tea industry. The Tanzania Railways Corporation has received 44 Chinese-made freight wagons. It's part of a World Bank finance project to upgrade the country's transport logistics along the Central Railway line. CGTN's Daniel Kijo has more. The wagons were bought through a World Bank $290 million loan for the country's intermodal rail development project. The project aims to revamp the Central Line running from Dar es Salaam to Kigoma. The cash is also going towards buying locomotives and tamping machines. The wagons have been made in China by the CCRC International Corporation Limited, with each having a capacity of 46 tons. The newly acquired wagons will boost freight services at the Dar es Salaam port by reducing loading and unloading time to 24 hours from three days. 
Tanzania is a lifeline for the landlocked countries of Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi and the Democratic Republic of Congo. The TRC management has been tasked with taking proper care of the wagons for them to be used by future generations as well as collecting revenue. Tanzania has two railway systems, a central line extending towards Kigoma and Mwanza run by the TRC and a southern route which extends from Dar es Salaam into Zambia managed by the Tanzanian Zambia Railway Authority. The Director General of the Tanzania Railway Corporation said that the implementation of the project from Dar es Salaam to Morogoro has reached 93% and will be finished in early 2022. Daniel Kijo, CGTN, Dar es Salaam. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Africa Live. And uh, we examined a number of issues on the continent and uh, indeed uh, throughout the international community. That is going to uh, wind down our Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for today, uh, Saturday, October the 9th, 2021. And uh, we've been broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. Uh, We'd like to thank all of our listeners for uh, tuning in uh, once again uh, to another edition of our program. If you'd like to have access to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. These uh, programs can be shared uh, with other potential listeners uh, just by copying and pasting uh, the links into emails and sending the emails out to other potential listeners. Uh, the programs can also be shared by copying and pasting links onto uh, blogs and websites. And uh, they can also be shared uh, through social media networks uh, such as uh, Facebook and Twitter. And uh, we're going to close out uh, our program uh, tonight uh, with the uh, trumpet sound of the legendary book, A Little. Uh, this is uh, from the album entitled Out Front. This is Abayomi Hanzikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. Mm-hmm.